Welcome to the podcast for Sunday, October 9th, 2016. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I was down below in Irvine this week from Tuesday to Thursday for a conference, and uh, my wife Jody, who works at Antelope Valley Hospital, texted me on Wednesday letting me know about the shooting. Her, of course, the hospital was spinning and the word was around, and everyone in the Antelope Valley knows about Sergeant Steve Owen's tragic death. Attempted burglary, interrupted, shots fired, officer down. But more than the details about how he died, I've been impressed with how our community has rallied around to support his family and his fellow sheriffs. When I drove back up Thursday afternoon, I, this is what I saw when I passed uh, the Avenue M overpass. I, I didn't know they were doing it. It caught me by surprise. I was overwhelmed by the show of love and support. Later that afternoon, a sheriff's motorcade left the L.A. County uh, coroner's office en route to bring his body back up to the Antelope Valley. And all along the way, people lined up along 14 to show their support uh, for him, including these L.A. County Fire Department firefighters from Acton. And story after story that I've heard or I've read about is that Sergeant Owen was an outstanding officer and a wonderful human being. His death has affected a lot of us here in the AV. And yesterday, while our church was part of the Mission Area Crop Walk, and we're walking down in uh, Lancaster, I realized we were at the corner. Hey, here's the, this is the sheriff's office. And I looked and saw this display, so I ran over to take a picture of it. Just another example of all the love and outpouring that was there. And if you're anything like me, you've been angry about the senseless violence the hatred, and the overall lack of grace that seems to be permeating not just our state, but our nation. Over a year ago, I planned this sermon series, or I pinned it into my 2016 preaching schedule. I knew that the elections for a president were coming up in November, and it was important for us to address this as a church. Not the particular election, per se, nor the candidates who are running for office, but some of the issues that are being argued and discussed and debated. You've heard it said, to never discuss religion and politics. Well, for the next month, we're going to be doing both. In the East Room of the White House on the National Day of Prayer in 2005, President Bush told an old story about President Abraham Lincoln. A minister once remarked to Lincoln that he hoped God was on the side of the president. And Lincoln said, I think you've got it a little backwards. Lincoln said, it's my job to make sure I'm on the Lord's side because the Lord is always on the side of the right. So it's my hope and prayer that over the next four weeks, this series will help us discern where God may fall on some of these topics like immigration, economic justice, and today's topic of homeland security and the war on terror. Literally, this this series has been penciled in for over a year. How significant that it starts today, the week after we've had such a horrific act of crime in our own backyard. In Jesus' day, there was just as much politics and religion as we have today, only it's quite different. 
Today, we, because of the separation of church and state in the United States, we think of groups as either being political groups or religious groups. But back in Jesus' day, they were one in the same. Alan Storkey, in his book, Jesus and Politics, remarks that the Jewish community in the Bible saw religious, religion and politics as integral, as, as going together because God's purposes related to their nation as a whole. Jerusalem was a modern, world-class city. It was significant throughout the eastern Mediterranean. But the Jewish people themselves had been under foreign occupation for centuries. From 586 B.C., they had had a succession of empires ruling over them. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, all of them had ruled over Israel. They were used to having foreign occupation in their homeland. Brian McLaren has a wonderful section in his book, The Secret Message of Jesus, where he lists the various political groups in Jesus' day and what they might have said about those centuries of oppression. The zealots would have responded, well, you see, the reason we're oppressed is that we're passive and cowardly. If we would have courage, if we would rise up and rebel, God would give us victory. I mean, if we would take action and slit a few Roman throats, if we had the faith and nerve to launch a violent revolution, then God would give us the power like he gave little David, and we would overcome Rome the Goliath and be truly free. The Herodians were named for uh, being supporters of King Herod. King Herod was the puppet ruler that Rome set up in Israel. They were joined by the Sadducees. The Sadducees were religious leaders, largely made up of the upper social and economic classes in Israel. They would say, oh, you guys have no idea how powerful Rome is. To rebel is suicide. Resistance is futile. You will be crushed. No, 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 no. We should make the best of the situation. Cooperate. Play the game. That's the only safe and sensible way. The Pharisees had a different diagnosis and prescription. They believed that the Lord would send the Messiah to deliver us if we would just become pure, more holy. If we would obey the Bible's teachings more religiously, then God would liberate us. There's too much sin and not enough piety among us. If there were more righteous people like us, they said, and fewer sinners among us, like, you know, those prostitutes and drunks and Roman collaborators, then God would end this Roman domination. And then you had the Essenes. They thought the Zealots, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees were all unenlightened. The only way to please God, they said, is to leave this corrupt religious and political system and create an alternative society out in the desert. So they established these various wilderness communities where they sought to be faithful by isolating themselves from the rest of the culture at large, a culture they believed was sick beyond all remedy. And then came Jesus, and the game changed completely. Author Shane Claiborne, in his book, Jesus for President, says that if you wanted to see uh, Jesus's political platform, just read Matthews chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. Our passage comes at the end of chapter 5, after he's already given the Beatitudes. And it has a lot to say 
uh, to contribute to our topic today on homeland security and the war on terror. Specifically because Jesus here addresses how do we treat our enemies. Now, if you have your Bibles with you or you want to grab the Pew Bible in front of you, I invite you to open it up to the Gospel of Matthew. First book in the New Testament. It's going to be about maybe uh, three-fifths or four-fifths of the way through the Bible. Chapter 5, beginning at verse 38. Matthew 5, beginning at verse 38. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, back in the day, there were no limits on getting revenge for those who have injured you. Did someone blind you in one eye? Well, then poke out both of their eyes. That'll teach them, and they won't ever do that again. So this law, an eye for an eye, was set up so that uh, it would limit the damage and still provide justice for the actions of others. Not going to go crazy, just equal measure for equal. Then by Jesus' day, the Jewish law had also set in place some monetary compensations. So you don't have to gouge out the other person's eye that made you blind. Instead, they could pay you for the damages done to you on the loss of your eye. You have heard that it was said, Jesus said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. Jewish teachers made their living teaching what the teachers that have gone before have said. They talked about the ancient authorities. Here comes Jesus, and he says, no, 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 I am teaching you something new. Over the course of his ministry, Jesus repeatedly asks his followers to think differently about life, to go beyond what was legally acceptable, or even beyond what they were justified in doing, and in this case, renounce their right to retaliation altogether. Douglas Hare, in his commentary on Matthew, remarks that the verb that's translated here to resist, do not resist an evildoer, clearly refers to the legal right to sue for compensation. So don't take them to court, even though you have the legal right to do so. And Jesus is just getting started. Verse 39. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give them your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. We're going to look at each of these three sections individually. We're starting with turn the other cheek. Out of all these sayings, this is one that's probably the most well-known. Walter Wink, in his book, The Powers That Be, has a great breakdown of just how powerful a piece of advice this was by Jesus. And it doesn't mean, oh, just let people walk all over you. You see, in Jewish society, if you're going to hit someone, you could only hit them with your right hand. It sounds strange to us, but your right hand. In fact, in some communities, if you hit someone with your left hand, you would be banished from the community and from worship for 10 days. It's kind of like how in some cultures, uh, you only eat with your right hand because your left hand is used for wiping, if you know what I mean, right? Taking care of bodily necessities. So, all right. Jewish culture, you're in a fight, you would use your right fist to hit the person on the left cheek, right? Just a good roundhouse up there. But if you wanted to insult someone, you still could only use your right hand, but then you would backslap them on the right cheek with the right hand, right? Punch, left cheek, backhand slap, sorry, right cheek, there we go, yeah, getting confused, but that, you got it. And 
to, a backhand slap was meant to humiliate someone, to denigrate someone, uh, to put an inferior in their place. So, when Jesus says, if you're hit on the right cheek to turn the other cheek, the only way you could get hit on the right cheek is if someone has backhanded slapped you. So Jesus is saying, if that happens, look the abuser in the eye and invite them to hit you with their fist like a human being, like an equal. When you turn the other cheek, you're saying, I am made in the image of God, and though you want to denigrate me, I will not let you do that. You cannot destroy who I am inside. So look the abuser in the eye, make them hit you with their right hand to see you as sacred worth. And Jesus is saying, it will probably be harder for them to do that. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give them your cloak as well. Now, to understand this verse, we have to know that in Jewish law, if a person was sued and found to be in debt to someone and they had no uh, money or no property to give, they could give up their coat because that was one of the most valuable things that a person would have. But if they give up their their coat, the person who got the coat, who now rightfully owns it, has to give it back to the poor person every night so that they have something to keep them warm. Even though the cloak is now theirs. Because Jesus knew even the poor have to be protected. Shane Claiborne says a more modern way of reading this verse would be, if someone wants to drag you to court and sue the coat off your back, take off all your clothes and hand them over, exposing the sickness of their greed. He says, you want my coat? You can have it. In fact, you can even have my underwear, but you cannot have my soul or my dignity. You see, nakedness was embarrassing and taboo in Jewish culture, but the shame fell less on the naked person and more on the one who looked on or caused the nakedness of another. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. In first century Israel, Roman soldiers often traveled on foot and they carried large amounts of gear. Uh, so they depended on, their, on civilians to help them carry supplies. There were no Humvees back in the day that could just carry everything over. Roman law stipulated that c- civilians could be asked to carry equipment for one mile, but no further. In fact, if it went further, then the soldiers could be found guilty and punishable by military code. There's ample evidence that soldiers were frequently guilty of abusing their right to impress local civilians to carry their gear. And so there was this tremendous amount of resentment among the Jewish people, knowing that a soldier, if he sees you, he's probably going to make you carry his stuff. But Jesus says, don't fight it. Go further. Double your service to them. Don't be hostile towards the Roman soldiers. Show them your inner strength by willingly going beyond their oppression. See if they'll let you. They're going to get in trouble if they do, right? So you see what's happening here? Jesus is calling his followers to go beyond the old ways of retaliation, retribution, and self-protection, and instead respond with dignity, with passion, with strength and grace. Don't see uh, those who oppress you as enemies. See them as people, albeit flawed and imperfect people, but people just like you and me. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father 
is perfect. Now, we'll start with that last phrase. Who can be perfect, right? John Howard Yoder, in his book, The Politics of Jesus, notes, the word perfect here, though, does not mean without blemish. It literally means unconditional. Be unconditional like your heavenly Father. Love unconditionally like God loves us, which is especially hard to do when we had a week like we've had thinking about the individual who brutally murdered Sergeant Owen. As Brian McLaren notes, for the early church, Jesus was inviting them to consider the radical notion that the kingdom of God would triumph not by inflicting violence, but by enduring it. Not by making others suffer, but by willingly enduring suffering for the sake of God and of justice. Not by coercing or humiliating others, but by enduring their humiliation with a gentle dignity and strength that will catch everyone off guard. Love your enemies and pray for them, Jesus says. Now, if we're going to do that, we have to begin to see our enemies from God's point of view. We can't pray for them if we don't think they're fully human beings, human beings who have been created in the image of God. And no matter how evil or heinous their actions, nothing they do can change that they are also sons and daughters of God. But here's the powerful point, friends. Jesus isn't asking us to do what he hasn't already done. When he was on the cross with his enemies insulting him, spitting on him, beating him, he prayed that God might forgive them. To be a son or a daughter of God is to reflect God's unconditional love for all, especially those who have hurt us. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. seemed to understand what was at stake as well as anyone He said, through violence, you may murder a murderer, but you can't murder murder. Through violence, you may murder a liar, but you can't establish truth. Through violence, you may murder a hater, but you can't murder hate. Darkness cannot put out darkness. Only light can do that. It was almost exactly a decade ago that tragedy struck the Amish community of nickel mines in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. A 32-year-old milkman by the name of Charles Carl Roberts IV, who had lived among, worked with, and was known by many in the Amish community, though he himself was not Amish, without provocation, entered one of the small Amish schools. In his tormented uh, and twisted mind, he blamed God for the death of his first child a few years back and some unsubstantiated memories. And armed with deadly force, he ordered the 15 male students, a pregnant woman and three parents with infants, to leave. He then bound the 10 remaining girls and shot them all before taking his own life. Five of the girls died, ranging in ages of 6 to 13. The savage cruelty grabbed the headlines in the United States and in many other countries. Those hearing were crushed at the tragedy. Many sent letters, money, and other resources to the suffering families to assist with their funeral costs, with the surviving girls' medical expenses, and to help soothe their terrifying sadness. And then something quite remarkable happened. The Amish community, though hurting and in great anguish, chose to follow the words of Jesus, and they responded with grace instead of hate. 
As the Milkman's family gathered in their home the day after the shootings, an Amish neighbor came over and wrapped his arms around the father of the dead gunman and said, we will forgive you. Amish leaders visited the milkman's wife and children to extend their sympathy, their forgiveness, their help, and their love. About half of the mourners who came to the gunman's funeral were Amish. In turn, the Amish invited the milkman's family to attend the funeral services of the girls who had also been killed. And a remarkable peace settled in on that community as they let the unconditional love of God flow through them to others. Overwhelmed by the outpouring of grace, Marie Roberts, the gunman's wife, issued the following statement. To our Amish friends, neighbors, and local community, our family wants each of you to know that we are overwhelmed by the forgiveness, grace, and mercy that you've extended to us. Your love for our family has helped to provide the healing that we so desperately need. The prayers, flowers, cards, and gifts that you've given have touched our hearts in a way that no words can describe. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, and is changing the world. And for this, we sincerely thank you. Please know that our hearts have been broken by all that has happened. We are filled with sorrow for all of our Amish neighbors whom we have loved and continue to love. We know that there are many hard days ahead for all the families who lost loved ones. And so we will continue to put our hope and trust in the God of all comfort as we all seek to rebuild our lives. Friends, when it comes to homeland security and the war on terror, we praise God for the sheriffs, the police officers, and our military personnel who work so hard to keep us safe. But as people of faith, it matters how we as individuals think about and respond to our enemies, both home and abroad. Jesus has called us to love our enemies and to pray for those who have hurt us, including praying for the young man who shot Sergeant Owen, for he too was a child of God. Now, he will have to face the consequences of his deadly actions, but he does not deserve our hatred. It's not necessarily the easy way to go by any means. But it's the way that Jesus said the kingdom of God is built. It's the way that will help us overcome evil and the damage that has been done to us. It's the way that we might have the fullness of life that Jesus wants us to live. May we prayerfully wrestle with this call, this difficult call of our Savior, that we might live it out in our daily lives, especially after such a horrifying week that we've had up here in the Antelope Valley. Thanks be to God for the opportunity to live into this reality. Amen.